Let's get after it. Turn in your Bibles to your favorite passage in all of Scripture, Ezra chapter 2. If you're brand new to Scripture, Ezra is a few books in. Um, Try to stifle your laughter as you turn to that page, uh, chapter 2, because it is arguably one of the most, um, or let's just say the least read chapters, maybe not in the book of Ezra or even the Old Testament, but in all of Scripture. And as, as you turn there, turn in your app there, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers would love to bring you a Bible, and, and that's yours to keep. Uh, if you need the Bible, we're going to be going through the Bible every single week. Okay, if you're there, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever wondered if what you do to serve God really matters. Think about all of the ways in which you've ever tried to please or obey God. Maybe you've never tried this before and so this is new for you, but even showing up to a service is a way that you're just here as an act of obedience to God. You're, you're hoping that God gets your attention and you're wondering if he noticed. I hope that sets the stage for our text this morning. Um, If anyone's not laughing yet, you will in a bit as we get into it. And uh, I want to kind of lower your expectations here for what we're going to go through this morning. Uh, I want to read a quote by probably the, uh, maybe not the most famous, but perhaps the most respected, credible scholar of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He says, writes, Chapters like Ezra 2 are among the most uninviting portions of the Bible to the modern reader, both because of their tedious nature and because of their overtones of racial exclusivism and pride. However fascinating the chapter may be to the antiquarian, it is unlikely that his enthusiasm will ever be shared by more than a few. Aw, thanks, commentator. That's so helpful of you. I disagree. I disagree because I preach from the Bible every week from the other parts of the Bible that said every part of Scripture is of value for understanding who Jesus is. And I hope today, if anything, it's a little bit of an experiment to prove that, to show you that Jesus is actually behind every page. And I hope to do that in about 35 minutes. So here we go. Here we go. I want to read this out loud for you. And my sound guy goes, the whole thing? Yes, we're going to read the whole thing, but we're hopefully going to have a little bit of fun of it, fun with it, and almost as a way to illustrate um, how tedious it can be. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Relay, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mishpar, Bigvi, Raham, and Banna. For those who don't have a baby name yet, you're welcome. 
This is important in one sense that Zerubbabel and Jeshua are two of the really key leaders in the people that are returning from this exile from Babylon. Uh, Zerubbabel is the king who was in captivity who returns. Uh, Yeshua, Jeshua is the high priest. He's the one in charge of all the spiritual uh, work that will go on. And you'll see that there's a sense in which every name here is directed towards this one approach of priesthood. They're here to rebuild the worship of the God of the universe back in Jerusalem. They're not just back to rebuild their lives. They're not just like, hey, we found some cheap land. There's condos going up back in Jerusalem. Let's all move back there. That's not what's happening. They're going for a specific focus to go back to reestablish the temple and ultimately the worship and the proclamation of the God of the universe. Right? Bold, bold move, Israel. Then let's read some of this. The number of men of the people of Israel. Now how they counted was basically heads of families. So the dads and the families. So you're going to get a, a, a little bit, um, you're going to get a little bit of this uh, men thing over and over again. The sons of Parash, 2172. The sons of Sheptiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, couldn't decide on mom or dad apparently. Namely, the sons of Jeshua and Joab, right? So you got the key leaders, kids, 2812. The sons of Elam, 1254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, great name, 623. The sons of Asgad, that sounds like a band, 1222. The sons of Adonakim, 666. Tough number. The sons of Bigvi, 2056. The sons of Aden, 454. The sons of Ader, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bazai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashum, 223. If you whisper these, it sounds like you're the narrator on Lord of the Rings. The sons of Gabar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, first name we all recognize, 123. The men of Netopath, 56. The men of Anathoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriam, Aram, Chepira, and Beeroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, I love that, 122. The men of Bethel and I, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. There's a documentary on him called Finding Nebo. The sons of Magbish, 156. The so I love this. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. How'd you like to be that guy? So Elam. Are you Elam or the other Elam? You know, there's a big argument in heaven right now. Like, how come I got the other Elam, right? One guy in our church, his name is Nate. So is the other guy. I refer to him as the other Nate. He's trying to change my mind. The sons of Harem, 320. Sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, Maybe a distant relative of Yoko, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sanaa, 3630. A lot of people there, isn't there? What's interesting is that everyone is counted. Those are not rounded up numbers. Did you notice that? That's a feat in and of itself in this day and age. Not a rounded up number. Like it's not like about this many people, it was like this many sons. That's cool, important, hang on to that. 
the priests. These are the people that are going to move the spiritual life forward. The sons of Jediah, of the house of Yeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1052. The sons of Pasher, 1247. The sons of Harim, 1017. The Levites. These are the priest's assistants. Uh, if you, it, we'll get into this a little bit, but basically the priesthood involves sacrifice, which involved the killing of animals. It's actually a pretty extensive thing. So when you've got thousands of sacrifices, you're going to need some executive assistance. That's who the Levites were. They were specifically designed to help the priests out. The sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, his kids show up, of the sons of Hudaviah, 74. The singers, here's the bands. They brought bands with them. This is amazing. The sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, they brought their security guards for their church services. The sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatida, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, this is the maintenance staff. This is the politically correct way the Bible says, the janitors. The sons of Ziha, the sons of Heshupa, the sons of Tabioth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Sahaya, the sons of Padon, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hegab, Hegabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hegab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, <clears throat> the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Rehai. It sounds like I'm starting a car. The sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Basai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Me, you, and him. Did you pick that up? <laughs> How'd you name your kid? I don't know. Between me, you, and him, we just came up with a name. The sons of Nephism, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazluth, the sons of Mahida. Triple dog dare you to name your kid this. The sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, or Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hadapha. The sons of Solomon's servants. This is the janitor's assistants. The sons of Sotai, the sons of Hazophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, maybe the coolest name of the bunch. The sons of Gidel, the sons of Shepatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Hokareth, Hazabaim, and the sons of Amy. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Melah, Tel Harsha, uh, who's missing from the list, Tel it on the mountain, Cherub, Aden, and Immer, although they could not prove their father's houses or descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 622. Also the sons of the priests, the sons of Abiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies but were not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. i got to explain what's happening there. The priesthood is a designated family line. You had to be born into it. You couldn't luck into it. You couldn't buy your way into it. You had to be born into the priestly line. So here, the governors, the leaders who are starting the work, are actually more concerned about obeying God than they are on people who are willing to help out and be a priest. Meaning there were some who wanted to be priests, they just couldn't find their birth certificates. 
They couldn't prove that they were priests. And so rather than say, well, God sees their heart. They mean well. What's the harm? They're like, no, we would rather obey God perfectly than risk just letting anyone into the priesthood, which could, by the way, is one of the reasons why they're in exile in the first place. Someone said maybe that's their motivation. They were worried about getting into the exile again, so they're like, uh-uh, we've been here before. We're not just letting anyone do in the priesthood. Can't find your birth certificate. Sorry, let us know. What's fascinating about that passage is that Nehemiah, when he recounts this 100 years later, one of those guys is reinstated as a priest and is very involved. So this is not, this is not a group of people that are lying their way in. They're just really worried about obedience to God. Okay. And, and only the priests were allowed to do umen and thurman. That's actually how they made decisions. Priests were allowed to do something called, like, basically roll the dice. And they would ask yes or no answers, and they would roll the dice, yes or no. And because they had been in contact with God, that was their answer. So only they were allowed to do these sorts of things. So it was really uh, much, uh, much more important than you and I think. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. That's a lot of bands. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments, which were also very expensive. Little calculation I did. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I tried to translate 61,000 derricks of gold into what it would be valued today, and I came up with $622 million. Even today, that's a lot. You could still build a pretty nice building. That was the free love offering they took up on top of all the resources. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. You're welcome. Well, some of you are like, I, don't, I still don't know why you read that whole thing and why you had to say all those names and all those numbers. Here's why I did it. If you were a son of Darkon, that means a lot to you, right? These aren't general numbers. These are specific numbers of specific people that you could trace a lineage back to. Each one of these people really mattered to the whole project. I read it out because I wanted to respect all of those people. You know, when you have a graduation ceremony, you don't stand up there and say, a bunch of people graduate. Okay, everyone throw your hats. <laughs> right? What do you do? You name them all. Why? Out of respect for each person's four-year university degree. That's why you do that. That's what I wanted to do, is to show you and give respect to Scripture and say, it is not just a bunch of numbers. These are not just a bunch of names. Each one of these represents a family unit that traveled for six months 
four to six months to get back to a land that didn't give them any opportunity agriculturally. Every single family. They had to give up likely the comforts of a life they had built around themselves by obeying God, by the way. And I want to respect that because we started a church from scratch. And I don't take for granted any second that people have poured into helping build this church to what it is today. Most of you never experience the kind of hard work that it took in those first two and a half years. Some of you remember those stories. They were awful. They were not unlike this issue in Ezra. And so this morning, I actually have four points, not just one. I have four points. I'm going to whip through them as fast as possible, and then you guys can go eat supper. That's a joke. I'll be done sooner than that. The first point is this. In the text, I see that the leaders go first. The leaders go first. You see right there in the very first part of the text that Zerubbabel and Jeshua are at the top of the list. Now, this would be very, very easy for those people like Zerubbabel and Yeshua to not worry about and say, it's someone else's deal. It's someone else's deal. But they didn't. They went first. They said, we will be an example. If we don't go, no one else will go. This is exactly how leadership works and always work and always will work. Leaders will go first. Some people ask, how do you become a leader at Urban Grace? And here's what I would always say. You pick up a broom and you go first in an area. That's generally how it goes down. You get in, you serve where you can, you do what you can. You don't necessarily wait for someone else to tell you what to do. The best leaders aren't the people who are asked to do jobs. They're the ones who ask to do the jobs. Now, that may sound like a little bit of a guilt thing, but I say, here's the deal. We're not guilted into this because we have the gospel pattern right in there. Because what's the gospel? The gospel is God went first. God did not wait for us to come to him, but he said, I will go to them. He did not wait for us to initiate a relationship with him and say, you know, when those when that group of people can get their crap together and they can, they can get, you know, organized and start spending time with me early in the morning, then I will show up and I will arrive and I will help them. That's not what happens. God comes first in the form of Jesus, not to be served, but to serve. He goes first. He dies on the cross. He pays a price for us so that none of us will ever have to try to earn our sin again. He goes first. And then, once he says, once you understand that and believe that, and I've accepted you as part of my family, and I've, I've earned a position in my family, then I want you to reflect me even in the way you do leadership. I want you to serve, not be served. I want you to go first. You know, this is a business principle that all the business people, that's what they'll tell you. Leaders don't wait for stuff to come to them. They go out and get stuff. It's a principle of leadership. I believe it originates with Jesus. 
And I think he's the best example for it. Incidentally, for fun, can you go back, Matt, one slide or two slides? There it is. How many people that just makes you tingle right now? Right? I actually made an Excel document to document all the names to come up with it. So there again, you're welcome. I'm connected to your world and I know how you feel. No, I don't at all. Thank you. Thank you for humoring me. That joke didn't go as well as I thought it would. The second thing I see in the text is something that I already alluded to, everyone counts. Every single person counts. Some of you think you're here and you're just in the back and no one will notice and that your participation in what's going on doesn't really matter. That's not how God works. I think part of the reason why this text is here and so detailed is they took great pains to show something that Jesus would later prove and say, when you become part of my kingdom, I'm going to give everyone gifts. Everyone gets gifts. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit. Everyone gets an opportunity to be part of building the church. Nothing's insignificant. There's no work that we do that even when it's hidden and nobody knows about that gets overlooked by the Savior and King of the world, Jesus Christ. Nothing. This should encourage us. This should encourage us greatly. Even now, there are things going on in our church service that many of you take for granted or don't even know about. There are people that give up their Sunday morning so that some of you can sit here and listen to a message without having a screaming kid at the back. Just for fun, while the singing is going on and the children come back, listen to how loud that is. It's loud. Because kids are kids, they're noisy. We love that. But somebody serves so that you can hear the Spirit of God speak to you this morning. Let's remember that. Someone got here early to set all this stuff up. Every Sunday, 8 o'clock, shortly before 8. Somebody worked hard to train in sound. Somebody's thinking about how do we get better coffee in here. Someone's thinking about what's it like for a new person to come in. Some of you are missionaries and your part to play is that you're inviting people and you're being equipped. Well, that's everyone's job, but you're specifically designed for this. Some are running video. Some are teaching our kids. You're teaching them so well that my daughter, who had to miss today, said, I'm disappointed at having to go to a birthday party because I really wanted to learn about Esther today. There are all kinds of people in this church who serve. The musicians. Those who print bulletins. Everyone counts, friends. Everyone counts. The priests are here. I want to draw this out. The priests are kind of the highlight of this text and some of you say, well, this seems where this, you get this exclusivism because of, their, you know, because of their genealogy. They're raised up above everyone else. That's not really how we're supposed to view it. God wanted to illustrate how 
otherly he was and how holy he was. And so he developed a system called priesthood and whereby in order for you to have contact and relationship with God, you would have to have a mediator that would stand between your sinful self and a holy God, offer a sacrifice. In other words, someone would have to pay the price for you to be in contact with God. And the people designated for this were priests. They all were to come from the family line of Aaron. You look back in the book of Exodus. For whatever reason, Aaron was chosen as Moses' brother, the lesser of the Moses Moses family. The other Moses. No one really knows why. We just know that they were chosen. They weren't special. They weren't holy. They weren't better looking. They didn't have better priest genes in them. They weren't better at offering sacrifices. They were chosen. Before they were born, they were chosen. What's more is they had to go through a number of rituals, not to make themselves better than everyone else, but to make themselves pure, symbolically pure. They had to spend days not touching anything, not eating anything specifically so that on behalf of their people, they could have a relationship with God. The priests are a centerpiece here, the assistant to the priests, the assistant to the assistant of the priests, the janitors of the assistant to the assistant of the priests. They're all listed here because the text is trying to focus us in and say, this isn't a free-for-all where everyone's just coming back to live as they please. This is 42,000 people who are going back to establish the right and proper worship of Jesus Christ, ultimately, God than they knew it, in in Jerusalem at the time. They said, it has been far too long that nobody knows about how powerful our God is. We must go back and rebuild the temple and the city so that people know how good God is. That was their focus. Here's what's amazing, friends. Here's what's amazing. Not only does everyone count in this process, but you know what Jesus does? Jesus turns everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ a priest. Did you know that? So the designated people who are supposed to bring the holiness and awesomeness and love of God into an entire society that's only a select few people of the society, suddenly Jesus makes everyone a priest. Some of you don't realize this when you walk around. You've given your life to Jesus. You think Christianity is a set of morals. No, it's not. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is, I turn my life over to Jesus and he makes me one of his priests that then brings the presence of God to the world. That's our mission. Do you know what a high honor that is? Does that register for us? Let me read it out loud for you. Want to turn? There. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. He's talking to Christians who are, quote-unquote, in a metaphorical exile. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
He's basically saying the old way is someone else brings God's presence. The new way through Jesus Christ is everyone who believes in his name brings God's presence. Everyone. Everyone. Did you hear what I said? I said everyone. This is not about gifting. This is not about money. This is not about age. This is not about ethnicity. It used to be about ethnicity, and now it's not. It used to be about money and opportunity, and now it's not, through Jesus. It used to be about gender, now it's not. Isn't that amazing? This is the good news of the gospel. Some of us still have this idea, and, and I get this called sometimes, I'm a priest. I guess I should get a little bit better at saying, and so are you, if you'll just turn your life over to Jesus. Some people come up to me and ask me to pray because they think, because I'm a pastor, it's like a priest and I have better and closer access to God. That is not the gospel. The gospel is everyone who turns their life over to God is a priest. And a designated spreader of God's presence. Give you a little image. Uh, sometimes, uh, well, actually, on a weekly basis, I spend my time, uh, my study day, at uh, the Calgary Perfume Club, also known as the University of Calgary. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to a university lately or you're studying on one. You can't walk in a university without smelling perfume from 20 feet away. I mean, I'll walk by some ladies, and I'll be like, whew, and I'll look back, and they're like 40 feet away, right? It's like that. That's what God has his vision for people who follow him to be like, that you're walking by, and you're like, whew, that must be a holy God that just went by. That must be someone who loves Jesus. It's so visceral, I can smell it on them. That's his design for you. And see, texts like this, we overlook this because it sounds boring. It looks like an Excel document, but essentially it's there to say, see how it used to be? It's not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore. What do we see, what do we see thirdly? Commitment doesn't trump obedience. You're like, how did you get Trump in a message again? Commitment doesn't trump obedience. This is what I was talking about earlier. It says, these, all these servants, tell Malah, tell Harsha, and tell it on the mountain, our friends there. What, what was really kind of going on there was there were some who thought being a priest was so noble. They wanted it so badly, and they were like, I know I'm a priest. They're they looking through the junk drawer. They're like, I can't find it. I know I put my birth certificate somewhere. I don't know what it looked like. It was like priest. It was a little certificate that they printed off. I don't know what it looked like. We don't know that. But what we do know is that the community didn't understand God to be this karmaic God that just weighed out their commitment versus their obedience. What do I mean by that? Well, some of us have this idea in our heads 
We're disobedient. Here's what I mean. You know God's word, what God's word says on something. You know what God says about turning your life and your wallet over him. You know what it means when you, when you turn your, your heart and your thought life and your sexual life over to him. You know what it means to turn your work over to him. You know what it means to turn your family relationships over to him, but you've decided that you know better. And that God doesn't kind of understand your situation all that well. You know it because right now you have that in your mind. I don't know what that is. I couldn't possibly know what that is. But you probably have an idea of what it is. That's called disobedience, or the Bible's word for it is sin. It means missing the mark. It means not following God's word like he asked us to. It goes all the way back to the early story in the book of Genesis where all God said was, listen to what I say and follow it. And if you don't, it's disobedience. And these people understood a very important lesson that desire to serve God does not outweigh obedience to God. And that some of us, this is actually how we measure our relationship with God. We're like, oh, well, I show up, I give, I serve. Maybe he won't notice that I watch porn. I serve God, maybe he won't notice this addiction here and maybe my service to him can kind of weigh this out and even it out. That's karma. That is not the gospel. The gospel requires complete obedience. You're right away, complete obedience, that's impossible then. Yes, that's why Jesus died for your sins. That's why. Because in complete obedience in our minds and our hearts is totally impossible. You can't do it no matter how hard you try, no matter how innocent you think you are, no matter how desperately you want to. There's this tension to say, I think inside, despite the fact that I say God's way is better, I think my way is better. It's everyone's problem. It levels the playing field. Some of us aren't better off than others. We're all on that same level. We have all sinned and fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. Every single one of us. But what I love about this is that the text shows us people who aren't perfect but have clearly understood that God is a holy God and that Commitment to him does not excuse disobedience. Let that be a careful lesson for us. You're saying, well, where's the gospel in some of this? I would say, guess what? Jesus never sinned, and yet he was completely obedient to the will of the Father. Listen carefully to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. This is what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and did not uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians is saying, going to the cross wasn't simply Jesus saying, this is a good idea. Going to the cross was an act of pure devotion and obedience to the Father's plan. 
If there was anyone who could find another way, I think it could be Jesus. He could say, hey, look at, I'll die for your sins. I just don't want to have to fast for 40 days. I don't want to do a bunch of miracles. He could have done it that way, I guess. Here's what he chose to do, to live in complete obedience. The end did not justify the means. And some of us, that's actually how we, we operate in our spiritual lives. Oh, sure, we believe in the grace of God. We believe that obedience is important, but we still function like God's karmaic, where we're trying to even out his temper by doing enough good things so that he overlooks all of our bad. And this pulls and draws this out and say, you better be careful if that's your mindset. That's not how God works. But this isn't to guilt. This is to draw us into obedience because God says over and over again, my way is better. I will show you that. If you'll trust in me, I will show you that. No, I don't believe you could lose your salvation because you sin. But sin could harden your heart to the point where you don't want anything to do with God. And do you really want to play around with that? The text reminds us that these are the things that God is concerned about. Even more than he's concerned about you showing up for church and serving in church and every bit counts. Fourthly, generosity moves the mission forward. My treasurer loves this. And so do I. Because right at the end it says, Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings to the house of God. There were a lot of things that were required in order to keep this temple up. There were a lot of tithes, a lot of offerings that basically if you subscribe to uh, being a Hebrew follower like, that you had to do, this wasn't one of those things. This was something that you just felt that you wanted to do. It was like a Christmas gift, right? We have those Christmas gifts where you're like, oh, I don't want to go to that party because then I have to buy a gift for that person. I don't really want to give them a gift. And then there's those people that you're like, I don't think they're going to give me a gift this year, but I want to give them a gift because I think they're not going to give me a gift. I just, I, just want to, I just want to bless them. That's that kind of offering. $622 million, no small amount. If there were about 42,000 people or 42,000 families, still a lot of moolah. This always happens with God's mission. Some of you think the way this is called fundraising, that we, you know, I, I need a job, and so we ask for money so that I can keep my job, and I'm sure that's going to perpetually be the mindset for some of you, but I'll tell you what's honestly on my heart is the more resources we have, the more we can move the mission and the kingdom of God forward. We could really use a building for what we do. Amen? Anyone who sets up at 8 a.m., amen? We're going to be using Vin and Laura's building for their church for some seasons while we uh, kind of transition, and you're going to get a firsthand experience of what it's like to be in a building, and then you're going to start praying. I just know it. 
How is that going to move forward? Well, one of the ways it's going to move forward is when you believe in the mission and you give sacrificially. Do you know how difficult it was to give in that context? Nearly impossible. They showed up with almost nothing. For some of these families, it would have been everything that they had, any savings account that they had. What's also amazing is that money is always tied into our hearts. This is an amazing pattern that you see in the Bible. When Jesus talks about money, he always connects it to our hearts. Why? Because we spend money on what is really we desire in our hearts. If we desire comfort, we spend money on things that are our comfort. If we believe in what someone's doing in a business, we'll, we'll give them extra money because we believe in what they're doing. When we love our kids and we want to bless them, we give them money to help them. We pay for their college we pay for their vehicles. Lord, help me. We pay for their marriages. Oh. We do that when we love people. And what Jesus says is, when you love me, you'll remember that this money is actually mine in the first place. He doesn't do it to fundraise. He doesn't need your money. What does he want? He wants our heart. And he says, I can find out where your heart is at when I find out where your budget is. Look at your own budget. Is this not true? You find ways to spend things on things you really want, even though it's amazing what sometimes you find ways to buy things even when you didn't think you could because your heart is there. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't about money. This isn't about fundraising. This is saying, what has Jesus done for your heart? Did you know that this is not a principle that Jesus doesn't show in his own life? Some of you say, give because God is good. And here's what I would say is, Jesus gave you everything. How can you not give him something? Jesus did not tithe a portion of himself off. God did not say, you know what? I'm going to give 10% of my power to my church. I'm going to give them part of my Holy Spirit. I'm going to give them maybe 3% of the signs and wonders. I'm going to give them, uh, you know, 8% of the people. And uh, you know what? We'll see what they can do. No, nope, doesn't do it. Gives everything. Jesus is not part of God. He is God. The Holy Spirit is not the third stepbrother of the Trinity. He's all God. We have the full power of the Holy Spirit available to all of us as priests. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is available to me and you. Somebody say amen. What Jesus says is, where's your heart at? Is money more important than my glory? You'll keep it. If my glory is more important than your money, you'll hold it with an open hand. That's how it works in every case. And if you ever feel like you need to be stingy, just remember that your Savior was not stingy with grace. He does not give you just enough. He gives you more than you need. 
He does not withhold his grace until you get your act together. He gives you grace before you got your act together. That's why the gospel is good news, not pretty decent news. He invites you to participate in your family before you receive everything that you need to receive. He covers your sin before you could even offer him anything. While you were yet a sinner, when you were rebellious to him, he offers this to you. What I see is people who have been moved by the Holy Spirit of the God of the universe, who have set aside their own agendas for life, who have set aside their own comfort for life, so that they can see the proclamation of God go on. And if it weren't for these 42,000 people, we don't have a story, and you and I don't really have a church. Because this is an incredibly important part of the story. This is the same temple steps that eventually Jesus will stand on. This is the same temple that he will say, destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to be a temple. This is the same temple that Jesus says, you don't need a temple anymore, you have me. The temple was always about getting close to God. He said, you don't need a temple, you have me. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to be better than me. Because he won't be restricted to a physical body like I am. He's going to be available everywhere. And in Calgary in 2017, you're going to have the same access to the Holy Spirit that everyone there did in those original days. To see the resurrected Jesus Christ. So there there you go. See? The gospel's in Ezra chapter 2. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. And so as the band comes, here's some things I want you to consider. To be honest, I want you to consider what part you play. I want you to consider what part you play. I want you to consider your resources. I want you to consider even your resettlement, what the focus of your life is, what the mission of your life is, whether you're still about building your own kingdom or whether you're interested in building God's kingdom. Your kingdom, by the way, won't last very long and it won't show up in the Bible, but this kingdom that you're being called to build and asked to be part of will last forever. In fact, that's the only thing that's going to last forever. Which do you want? Consider that this morning as we partake of communion. Let me take a brief moment to explain this to you. Communion is in a sense like a voluntary membership card. By partaking in communion, you're not simply taking some bread and dipping it in the cup. Here's what you're doing. You're saying, I am one of God's children. I am called to be a priest I am called to reflect God with my life, my mission, my resources, everything in me. I have been chosen by God. My guilt has been washed away. My sin has been taken care of. My life has been filled with God's Holy Spirit. I recognize that Jesus wasn't just a great example. He was an example, but he was also my Savior. And the best part of all is he was God. I am a son or a daughter of God. That's what it means when you partake in communion. So this is why we always say, don't take this lightly. This is an incredible opportunity and a privilege 
And I'll just make an invite now. If this is the first time this is making sense to you, and you say, well, I can't participate in that because I don't believe that yet, I would ask this, what is holding you back? What is it in your life that you can't give up to receive Jesus? I would invite you to give it up and accept Jesus for who he really is, God and Savior, Lord of the universe. You're going to have to bow down to him one day. Why don't you just do it now? And then partake with a clean and robust conscience and enjoy responding to him in song.